you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Good morning. Well, um, I am grateful to be up here. If I have not met you, my name is Philip. I am one of the elders here, uh, and it's an honor to be up here to be able to share with you guys this morning. Uh, and now, I've, I know I've shared this in, in uh, other sermons before, uh, but I uh, currently work in the restaurant industry, and I've been in the restaurant industry for about five years now. But prior to being in the restaurant industry, I was in, uh, I was in ministry for about a total of 10 years. Uh, I was a full-time pastor for about seven years and, and had like various director-level part-time roles for uh, three years uh, before that. Uh, but in the last couple of years in my full-time ministry career, uh, we, we started a church. I, I planted a church uh, up in the city that we were living. It was in Marino Valley, just up in like Riverside area. Uh, it was a crazy adventure. Um, it was, I still to this day would say it's probably the most difficult professional thing like I've ever, I've ever had to do. It's very hard, very challenging. Um, I actually have a couple of pictures just for, for fun I wanted to show this morning to kind of give you guys a sense of what somewhere we're up to. So this is a picture up here. This is like when we were, uh, in a movie theater. So this is actually where we opened. Uh, we, our grand opening was in a movie theater. We were what you would call a portable church or a church in a box, as you might, you might hear it. But basically, you know, we had all of our equipment, all of our kids' ministry, everything we had was packed into this little trailer that we'd store. And then once a week, we would pull out, and we had a whole setup team, and they would set up the this, this service. And so this is like our, our practice services, one of our practice services. Another picture here is like our kids' ministry. Um, so because we had rented multiple theaters out. And so we had the main service in one area, and we had a kids' ministry in another area. Right? It, was, it was just a lot. Um, but uh, about a year into planting, we had been in the theater. There, uh, the, the movie theater has changed some of its agreements with us. Uh, and then we were just really kind of reevaluating, considering, and adapting and changing our strategy. We decided to move to an elementary school. And so I got a picture of here. This is one of our earliest uh, services at this elementary school that we moved to. Um, and, and we had been there for a while. Uh, we were there for a couple years. But during the planning stage, before we got into the movie theater, when we were asking ourselves, is this a move God wanted us to make, uh, we were spending a lot of time praying and thinking through. And so one of the things we did is we wrote out a budget for ourselves and thinking, hey, what would it cost for us to go from the movie theater and buy all the equipment and buy all the things we needed to, to go into a multi-purpose room in an elementary school? And so, you know, we were really innovative and we found a lot of ways to you know cut a lot of costs like we made our own pipe and drape and we I mean we just we, we were very thrifty right as I would say uh, but we got to the point in time where the lowest number that we could come up with was five thousand dollars and we thought well it's five thousand dollars is about the minimal amount of equipment we would need to, to to change locations and depending on your background you might be thinking that's a lot of money or you might be thinking well that's a very small amount of money I'm going to tell you it's a very small amount of money uh, uh, speaking. However, we were in a very low socioeconomic area. Marina Valley is a very low socioeconomic area. Everyone in our 
um, church was struggling financially. There were like, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things that that, that was, there wasn't a lot of money coming in on a, on a month-to-month internally. Uh, our total like annual budget was like $40,000 or something, which is very small uh, for, for a church. Um, we had, there were three staff members, most of us, myself included, we just virtually weren't even, we weren't even paying a very small money, amount of money. Point is, that $5,000 just seemed like something there was no way we were going to come up internally. Like we thought if this was going to happen, it would happen somehow externally. As it turns out, uh, a week after sitting down with this, our leadership team, praying over this budget, asking God, is this what you want? I was at a social event in the city. Uh, we were in Riverside area. Uh, I happened to come across a friend of mine uh, who I, I knew from a previous church. He was not involved with our church at all. He knew nothing about what we were doing or were talking about. And he, uh, he saw me, and he meant a lot to me, and he very supportive of me. And he, and he said, Philip, I want to pull you aside. I, I got something for you. I was like, okay. And so he, he pulls me aside, and in private, he kind of says, and a little embarrassed, he's like, you know, my wife sometimes likes to play slot machines for fun. Now, she doesn't care about the money at all. Now, I was very confused at this point in the conversation because <laughs> I, I don't get casinos. I don't really like casinos. I don't like going to casinos at all. Um, and I, and it, then you think about like going there for fun. I mean, maybe the buffets, but I think those are even overrated. And then you tell me slot machines, which out of all things seem like the most miserable thing. And then you say, money's not involved, or you don't care about the money, now my brain is broken, right? I don't understand why, why you would do this, right? Why you do this to yourself. And then he says, well, she, she won a $10,000 jackpot, uh, but we don't want the money. We've already decided that is not what we're interested in, so what we want to do is we want to split that between two churches, and you're one of those churches. And then he hands me a check for $5,000. And I was incredibly... I was incredibly humbled. I was like, this is a weird, bizarre conversation I still don't know what to do with. <laughs> but it just so happens that we were in this season of thinking, here's what, it, what do we need financially? And I, I went back and I looked at my old books, my own budgets, my own records of giving. And it's like, literally, it was like $5,000 and $5,000. And within a week period of time, it was just insane. Uh, and it just so happens that I was at this party and a friend of mine, I mean, just the timing of everything. And I would generally say, I would never advise someone to think that God would use a slot machine to provide financially. So I'm left wondering, is this, is this a coincidence? Is this, is this a coincidence? I, if I'm, sh- I'm sure if I were to go around the room right here, right, and everyone in this space, or if I were to go to the service before, and we were to gather up all of the stories, and I were to ask around for people to give me stories, but people who have been walking in faith, who have been earnestly seeking God, and we were to recount the stories of ways that we have seen bizarre coincidences that seem to surround prayer and obedience, I am sure we would have dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of stories within our church about how God provides in these very weird circumstances. Very weird coincidences. And I can say, even in my life alone, I know, the last few years even, I have seen very bizarre things happen that I look back and I can confidently say, that was God leading, that was God providing, that was God's mercy in my life. God often leads and he works and he speaks and he provides and he cares in our circumstances. And there are bizarre ways that things just sometimes just happen to turn out certain ways in remarkable ways. 
That God works in the circumstances God provides in mysterious ways. And we're going to see that uh, this morning as we jump into the uh, chapter 2 of Ruth. Uh, we're on the second week of, of this series. But before we go any further, would you all just join me in a word of prayer to ask that God would just invade this space. Heavenly Father, God, I just uh, thank you for today, God. Thank you for all of those who are here, those who are watching online, God. And I just ask that you would work in our hearts. You would soften us. You would teach us, God, something from your mouth, God, and that you would interrupt any agenda I have that is not from you, Lord, but you would speak what you will and what you desire, Lord. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. And I ask that the words of our hearts, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So just a really quick recap. Uh, last week, JP, uh, JP gave it a, a wonderful uh, you know, a job, did a wonderful job explaining the context of the book of Ruth. And so one thing to know is that the book of Ruth is written during an era, what we call the era of Judges, the Judges era. And there's two books in the Bible that were written during this season. Uh, we're not written, they're about the season. One is the book of Judges, right? It's fitting, right? <laughs> the second one is the book of Ruth. Uh, and so uh, the era of the judges is arguably one of the darkest eras in Israel's, in biblical Israel's history. Uh, we see this cycle of sin. JP talked about this. I'm not going to expand on this a whole lot, but there's this cycle of sin that we see go over and over again in, in this, and this is all what happens in the book of Judges. But we see that there is a, uh, the people of Israel would rebel against God, and often at the center of that was some kind of an idolatry. And then they would, they would uh, be captive, they would go under ruin at the hand of a foreign nation, which ironically often tended to be the people who had those idols that they fell into. And so there's this weird and interesting way in which God is trying to show us that our idols often enslave us. Right? And then there's this plea for help. God, like, help us. We're enslaved. We're captive. We need your help. And then God sends a judge to them who is just a ruler, sometimes there's a military leader, to intervene and to rescue them. And then they would repeat. And this would go on for decades. And it was a very dark season full of disobedience and oppression. And for those who were faithful living in this time, these would have been very dark years. These would have been years full of discouragement, disappointment, frustration. There would have been years of them longing for change, for something to be different. And the book of Judges shows us on this macro picture of what is happening during this time. It's fast-forwarding over a couple of decades and showing us with this pattern that goes on and over and over and over again about why this is such a dark season. And then the book of Ruth is this zoomed-in view. It's, this, it's showing us what's going on on a microscopic level in the, in, the, in the life of Israel. And it's showing us a story about a couple of faithful people who lived during these very dark years. And so last, last week, uh, JP taught on uh, Ruth 1. And just a very brief synopsis. Uh, there, there was, it was a story, it shows us the story of a man named Elimelech who during a famine took his wife and his two sons and he left uh, Israel and he went into a foreign land, uh, into Moab. And the sons, uh, his sons ended up marrying two women in Moab, the Moabite women, and one of them was named Ruth. And then tragedy strikes and then he and his two sons die, leaving his wife Naomi and, the, and his two daughter-in-laws. And then Naomi says, hey, 
Go, go home. Go back to your father. Go back to your, there's nothing good you're going to get from staying with me. Go remarry. Go, go start over. Go have a do-over in life. Let me waste away as a, as, as a widow. And one of them leaves, but then the other one, Ruth, says, no, I'm staying with you. Right? And so she stays with Naomi. And so then the two of them head back to the homeland, their homeland, Naomi's homeland. And that's where Ruth 1 ends. Chapter 1 ends, right? And today we're going to be reading chapter 2. Uh, I'm not going to have all of the, the passage on the words up here, so I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, open it up. We're in Ruth chapter 2. If you have, um, if you have your, if a Bible app, whatever it is, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, we're going to read, just spend, you know, 5-10 minutes just reading through the passage together and kind of breaking it parts and talking about it. But let's go ahead and dive in. Ruth chapter 1. It says, now, starting verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. And then Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So a couple of things. So one, I just, this picture that Ruth is saying, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go try to get us some food. Okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go to some fields. I'm going to go see if I can pick up some leftovers here. And in the book of Leviticus, there's actually a couple of laws there that uh, were written in order to allow for this kind of a situation to even happen. And so one of the laws said, hey, when you're harvesting your field, you cannot go to the farthest edge of your field, right? You should not go all the way to the edge of the field. Leave like the corners of your field untouched. And then the second law was, that was written was very significant. It says, hey, when you go through the field once, do not come back and go through it again, right? You're allowed to go through and pass through your field once and grab and, and, and glean all that you can at that point in time. And the purpose of this was in order to provide for the poor, right? It was allowed an opportunity for someone like Ruth, who was in a real intense hardship. She now had a means, right, because of Levitical law. She had a means to go and get some food for herself. So Ruth goes out, and out of all the fields, right, and you have to think in this season, in this era, right, there would have been a lot of farms, a lot of country land out there for them to be able to go uh, uh, pick up from, right? And out of all the fields that she goes to, she happens to end up, and this is the text that specifically says that it just so happens she goes to the field that belongs to Boaz, right? Uh, it just so happens. So as it turns out, she ends up in the field of the relative of Naomi. She has no idea. This is a remarkable coincidence. So moving on, picking up in verse 4. So it says, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And then Boaz asked the overseer, right, the manager of, of, of the harvest, and says, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And so she came into the field and remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So pay a close attention, right? So it... it in, in verse, uh, uh, previous verse, it says that it just so happened that she landed in Boaz's field. 
Also notice that it says just then Boaz arrived when she was there, right? So the timing, the coincidence, these things just kind of line up perfectly. And then he sees her and then he asks about her. Let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to be picking up in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who works for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after these women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that men have filled. So Boaz then approaches her and says, hey, don't, don't go anywhere else. You stay here. It's safe here. Right? And the picture you got to have in your head, uh, she is uh, now a widow. She's a foreign woman. There's no male in her life in the area that's going to protect her, right? It is a dangerous game for her to just be wandering around. And so Boaz says, stay here. Stay where it's safe, right? Stay here. And then in addition, he says, and when you're thirsty, take the water that we have, right? Have some water, right? So this is, it's a huge act of generosity, And so this is how uh, uh, Ruth responds in verse 10. She says, At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Now just notice Ruth's observation. She's like, I'm a foreigner. Out of all the people, out of all the poor, I should be the lowest of your concern. I don't deserve it. Then Boaz replied, I have uh, been told of all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with people that you did not know before. before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So at at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over, meaning she she was full. She had an abundance at this point. Um, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her uh, from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her, right? Don't hurt her. Don't do anything to her. And in fact, go ahead and take some out of our abundance and leave it for her so that she would just happen, happenly come by and pick it up. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and amounted to about an ephah, uh, which is about 30 pounds. And she carried it back to the town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough, right? She was overflowing. And so now uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law, asked her, where did you glean today? She's seeing this abundance that she has. She's like, where did you glean today? Where did you work today? Blessed be the man who noticed of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law um, about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. 
The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has stopped, not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is our, one of our guardian redeemers. Now that title of a guardian redeemer is significant. Uh, JP is probably going to expand on this next week or the following week. But essentially, a, a guardian redeemer was somebody within a family who is responsible for caring for uh, another household if they were to kind of hit some tragic situation just like this. Right, and so one way that that, would, that might uh, unfold is like, well, if, the, if, a, if a household got uh, hit with poverty or something bad happened to them, that guardian redeemer could go up and buy the land and be able to take care of that family. And that way the land would stay within the family. They'd get a reasonable price, right? It's this idea that they had this obligation to take care of, redeem the, those within the family. And the word redeem is very important. Right? It's this idea that, we, that you're, you're, you're fixing something broken. You're taking something wrong and you're helping making it right. right? And so there's a special role that Boaz has. Let's go ahead and finish up the chapter. Here, picking up in verse 21. It says, Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with me, my, my workers, until they finish harvesting all my grain. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it would be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who worked for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and what harvests and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So this is just kind of take a step back and just look at the whole what happens here in chapter two. This is a turning point from tragedy. It's a turning point of tragedy from Ruth and Naomi's life, right? They're in the middle of this crisis. They've lost everything. They're without food. They're without, really without hope. And then odd things start to unfold on seeming coincidences. And now all of a sudden they have a little bit of hope. And this is, this is one of the reasons why I love the book of Ruth, right? Because it helps us see how ordinary people of faith see God on a regular basis, they aren't these large, grand miracles going on in the book of Ruth. There's no big or major prophets who are performing, you know, miracles on a left and right basis. There's no burning bushes. Instead, what we see is God is working in these seemingly insignificant people in seemingly insignificant ways. And he's pulling together these bizarre circumstances and weaving them together in order to redeem and provide. It gives us this powerfully clear picture of how God's providence, uh, how God provides to people in a way that is very relatable to us. Um, it is a remarkable set of circumstances that led Ruth and Naomi out of tragedy and into a place where they are now face to face with hope. The field, I mean, it says that, that out of all the fields Ruth were to stumble upon, as it turned out, that it just so happened to be Boaz's field. Boaz just happened to show up at the moment that Ruth was there. Right? And the Hebrew word there for uh, as it turned out is mikra. And it means it's a, it's a, it's a chance, it's a coincidence. And then there's and the other places uh, in the Old Testament, it's, it's actually that same word is translated for fate or destiny. I got to ask us this morning, what is the difference between chance and fate? And it's intentionality. It's the determination of God. Fate is when something is determined by God. 
And to the mature believer, there is no such thing as chance. There is no chance, right? Everything falls under the sovereign will of God. Uh, in Proverbs 16.33, it says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You can roll the die in life, but God is in control of the outcome. Now, I want to look at the story from two angles, right? And the first angle and the main, the, the main angle is the, story, the angle of Naomi and Ruth. Put yourself, yourself in their shoes, right? Envision what you would be thinking at that moment. What would you be feeling at that moment, at the beginning of chapter two? You just experienced devastating loss. Life is not what you expected. Nothing is good that, that what you're seeing right now. Nothing is turning out the way you had hoped or dreamed. And if you specifically look at Naomi, the mother, not only did she leave her house because of a famine, she left her homeland because of a family, and she went to a foreign land. And now her husband died and her two sons. That is, that is an insanely hard amount of loss to grasp with. But certainly, I don't think any of a, one of us would blame her for wondering, what is God doing? Where is God's providence? Where is God's provision right now. What is God doing? And you can imagine in the, the journey out of Moab back home, you could imagine that at the beginning of this chapter, when Ruth just leaves to go and to begin to glean, right, they would have absolutely no idea what God might be doing in order to redeem their situation. How many days, how many weeks, how many months went by of them just thinking, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? They had no idea of how God was moving. Now, I don't want to spoil the ending, uh, but, but you don't, you got to understand, this book is meant to be read at one sitting, right? Like, this is the kind of a book, like, at the end of every chapter, it's like, it's going to have you sitting on the seat, kind of waiting to find out what happens next, right? And so it's like those cliffhangers, and you watch a movie, like a TV series, and it, has, it ends on a terrible cliffhanger, and you're waiting for the next week. It's not how Ruth is supposed to be read. You're supposed to just read it all the way through. So I don't want to spoil the ending, but this book is like 2,000 years old, so forgive me. But uh, Boaz and Ruth, they end up getting married, uh, and, and Ruth and Naomi are very well taken care of. They're very well taken care of, but even more, even what's more remarkable, and this is something that we wouldn't see for decades, is that Ruth eventually becomes the great-grandmother of David, right, who became the most influential king in Israel's history, and arguably all of human history. Uh, and even more, we can think about it this way. David becomes a great descendant of Jesus, which means out of this remarkably tragic event, God not only redeems this situation, but he, he, give, he then gives them this incredibly high honor and eventually uses the story to bring about a redemption for the entire world. But one of the hardest things in our faith, in the Christian faith, is that we don't always get to see the full picture of what's happening. We don't understand what's happening. We don't see the full picture, right? We are beings that are bound by time and bound by space, and we have such limited knowledge. We don't see, we don't know everything. Instead, we just see these little glimpses, these little ways in which God seems to be working, kind of pulling things together. 
but it's sometimes just small enough that it leaves us unsettled, leaves us questioning, it leaves us doubtful. Ruth and Naomi would never see the full legacy of their lives. They wouldn't have dreamed that 25, 3,000 years later, people would be talking about them in a church like this. It is just, a, they just see these glimpses of how God has redeemed their life. They just see these little ways in which God has done this. Oh, look at that, look at that. And I could imagine Naomi especially, at the end of her life, feeling very unsettled. For her, her husband and her sons, they're dead. They died. And she doesn't understand why that worked out. She doesn't understand how God took a tragedy and ultimately turned it in and weaved it into a victory. But this is the heart of faith. We often don't know. And in this story, we see that God redeems this tragedy and Ruth's hardship is redeemed and her faithfulness is rewarded and God didn't let Naomi starve to death. And, and like many of us, we will see God's faithfulness again and again. We will see God provide again and again. We will see these events that just so happen to turn out a certain way where we can look and confidently say, well, God was at work there in my life. I can see it. I get it. I can see that, that God was moving there. But this morning, I want us, this morning, I want us to remember there will be plenty of times when things don't end the way we expect or the way we want. Did Naomi want her kids to die? Did, did she want her husband to die? God didn't redeem that specific loss. They didn't come back to life. He just transformed the loss into a victory, and a victory she didn't fully get. She would never fully get at the point of the end of her death. She would never understand what that story became. Her hope would have been that the husband would have never have died. Her hope would have been that the kids would have never died. There's a different way of thinking about it that many of us can relate to, right? Uh, given my stage of life, I'm, you know, we're young family, couple of kids. We've got three kids. They're all really young. Um, given my stage of life, my greatest losses, fears, and hardships have yet to come. The worst has yet to come. And that could be a very scary thought. And we can celebrate miraculous healing and answered prayers. We should celebrate those healings and the miraculous prayers, or miraculous answers to prayers. But we also need to remember there's going to be a day cancer will win. The doctor will say they just can't do anything more. That that bad news phone call in the middle of the night is really just that bad. And there's nothing more to it. And many of us already know that way too well. Loved ones will eventually go. We will eventually go. And in those moments, we might, like Naomi and Ruth, be wondering, what is the redemption? Where is the redemption? Where is God's providence? Where is his goodness? And in those moments, we need and we must understand the miracles we see in our lives, those weird coincidences that come together and show us that God is doing things even when we don't see it, the providence we get to see over and over, the miracles we get to see in the Bible, 
that when we look at the story of Ruth and see how God had provided in the middle of a tragic situation, those are but reflections of something greater. And they are showing us on a very small scale about what God is doing on a much larger scale with our entire destiny. Miracles in the Bible and in our lives are largely meant to teach us, to show us that God is in the business of fixing broken things, that he is a provider, that he loves us, that he cares about us, and we can trust him even when we don't understand why, even when we don't understand what he's doing. You know, Jesus performed all these miracles in the Bible, and the purpose of these miracles weren't just to heal, right? You know, there's these stories of him healing somebody with leprosy. And it wasn't, that's not there to just heal somebody with leprosy. Jesus didn't come to the earth to just heal a person or two or whatever, a couple of, you know, just to work some miracles in the time that he did. That's not what he was there for. And sure, those people were blessed in that moment, but that's not the purpose of that miracle. It wasn't about healing, at least that instance of leprosy. And John, the Gospel of John is very explicit John doesn't use the word miracle. He uses the word sign. And what is a sign? A sign points us to something else. It tells us, a sign doesn't exist for itself. A sign doesn't exist just to be read. A sign is there to point you to something else. And Jesus' healing was a sign to point us to something else. It wasn't just for that one moment of healing. It was to point us to say, this is what I'm doing on a much larger scale. Miracles show us on a small scale what Jesus is doing on a much larger scale in our lives and in our destinies. And in the same way, the miracles in our lives, those times we see those coincidences pan out and those things, we're like, man, there's God working here. Those places where God is providing and his providence becomes visible to us, those are just showing us on a small scale just what kind of God he is. They're there to teach us. You can trust him. We can trust him with things that we don't understand. They're there to prepare us for the, th the days that we, uh, things are going on in our lives that we can't make sense of. They remind us that God is worth trusting even when you don't see what he is doing. You know, I talked about the church I started eight years ago, right? I, it was, the name of the church was Redemption Church, uh, and how I believe that God provided for us in this very miraculous way. It's very cool. But you know, we didn't make it. We didn't make it as a church. And I'm not going to go all the details. There's a lot of things that played into it, and there's a lot of you know, intersections of interesting moments in our lives that all happened all at once. And for numerous reasons, we ended up closing our doors and we merged with another church plant and I, you know, partnered with another church and all kinds of stuff happened, but we didn't make it. So what, what does that mean? What does that mean about the $5,000? God provided $5,000 but wouldn't provide for another 20 years? Is that, was that the, I mean, you can understand how easily we can misunderstand the point of the miracle. I think the lesson wasn't, hey, don't worry, Philip, the money's always going to be there. I'll keep the slot machines rolling for you. <laughs> no, the lesson was, keep 
following me one step at a time. Keep taking those leaps, keep trusting, keep working. And I'll fill the gaps to get you to wherever I want you to go. God showed me in a very little way there. I will provide. You can trust me. And I'm continually reminded God's plan for your life might be different than your plan, but his is certainly better. His is certainly better. And it's in those miracles in our lives that teach us that. It's those moments when things look bad, but as it turns out, God was working in, an ins- in a seemingly insignificant way with- through insignificant people. God's plan for your life might be different than your plan, but his is certainly better, and we can trust him with that. And what we see it from Ruth and Naomi is a lesson on a very small scale that we can trust him during hardships. We can trust him that during our loss, when things aren't good, we're going well for us. And it's not something for us to just simply recognize, but something for us to be thankful for. But there's a whole other angle to this, and I promise you it's not as long. <laughs> there's another angle, and it's the angle of Boaz. You look at the story from the, 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 the perspective of Boaz. You see, when you read the New Testament, you're going to fast forward into the New Testament for a moment, right? There's two big ideas that fit really well in, in the book of Ruth. And one of them is that, that we are saved, that we are undeserving, we are redeemed, we are like foreigners, and we, are, we have been offered a remarkable amount of grace by God, and he has saved us, that we are like Ruth and Naomi. And then there's this whole other side of the story, where God is saying, given all that, we are also invited and challenged to be agents of God's redemptive plan. We must be people who, yeah, no one believe that God is working in our lives, but also that, that there are going to be certain people in your life that will just so happen to be put in your life at that moment. And you are now presented with an opportunity to be an agent in God's plan. And God surrounds us with those opportunities, those people who just so happen to be there, those people who just so happen to need a little more kindness, a little grace, a little loving ear or a loving embrace. Uh, During our grand opening as a church, uh, we had all these ideas about how we were going to spread the news, right? And so we were sending out uh, flyers and mailers. We had ads going on Facebook. I mean, we had all kinds of creative things. One of the things we did is that we also did these like free car washes. And if you've ever spent time in Marino Valley, you'll notice there's so many car washes. I don't know why people in Marino Valley have so many car wash places, but we did one for free right in front of like this big car wash business. It's kind of messed up. I look back on it. Um, but we, we set it up right there. There was this pizza place that let us use their parking lot. And so we, as a church, did this free car wash. And then as people would come through, we'd wash their car. And then we'd tell them about this church that we're starting, you know, in a week or two weeks or whatever it was. Uh, and it was, we had a lot of traffic. A lot of people came through because people love their car washes in Marina Valley. I said, I don't get it. Uh, it was really cool. We handed out a lot of flyers. We got to pray for some people. Uh, largely, it didn't work in the sense that the people who we washed their cars, none of those people showed up. Right? None of those people ever showed up. However, the pizza place liked us. And so somebody came out and brought us a bunch of free pizza. It's cool. And, the, and I remember the young man who did it. He was completely confused what we were doing. He thought we were like fundraising for something. And I'm like, no, we're just, just kind of spread the word about this. And then I remember on one of his breaks, he sat on a curb across the parking lot just watching us. And so I went up and I talked to him. 
And I'll give you a very long story short. Uh, he had dropped out of high school a few years back. His father had left him as a child. His stepfather was about to leave him. His mother would just kicked him out, and he was completely lost. And we started this relationship that would go on for years and for a season. I met with him and helped him get his GED. And somebody from our church was a welder and he was thinking of getting into welding. And so somebody kind of took him under his wing and helped him develop a trade and a skill. He attended our church for years. And I remember towards the end, I remember him coming to tell me how much this church had transformed his life. I remember he specifically said, you know, the first couple of times I came because there's a bunch of cute girls and I was interested in the girls, but as I started showing up more, I started to listen and it started to hit me. And I also remember, you know, we had, as we were in the movie theater, I remember there was this manager, it's the same manager every single Sunday, it opened up the doors for us. Never thought twice about it, but little did I know, during our setup process, he would sit in the projectionist booth and just watch and observe us be people, not for a job, not for money, not for anything, but we were just on a mission. And he was captivated by that. And then sometimes during the services, he would sit in that, that area, you know, in a movie theater when you first enter, it's like pitch black and you go through a little hallway and it's there to break the sound and break the light so the movie theater doesn't ever hear it or see it or anything, right? And he would sit in there and just listen to the sermon. And then one day at 2 a.m., he reached out to me, he sent me an email. Then I didn't even know his name. I didn't, even, I didn't really even know who he was. And he said he wanted to meet. And so later that morning, I met with them, and within five minutes, the floodgates of confession opened up, that he had been lying to his wife, he'd been lying to his kid, he'd been living two lives, you know, on one hand, being a good husband, on another hand, he was on, on websites saying that he was 18 years old and hooking up with girls all over, and he'd been doing this for months. And he just, he just felt like a mess. And the, finally, the sin caught up with him, and he just was devastated. He knew nothing about Jesus, knew nothing about the gospel. And he and I started to meet regularly on a regular basis, and there was a lot of mentoring and a lot of counseling that went on during that time, and a lot of people, men from our church, gathered around him. And I remember about a year after, he accepted Jesus, and we baptized him. Um, I've been in the restaurant industry for five years, and I cannot tell you how many countless conversations I get to have about faith, depression, hope, and purpose. How many, so many opportunities to help people figure out finances and apply to colleges, work on their resumes to get big, bigger and better jobs. In the last year, I, something I had to I thought through, in the last year, there have been five times that I've met with employees who are struggling with mental health and confessed to me that they're having thoughts of suicide. And twice I've now intervened. Right? Uh, um, and not because I'm wearing a big sign saying, I'll help you, just ask me. But because I see somebody crying and I ask the question, what's going on? And I say all this not to brag or to boast, but to remind us and to challenge us. People who need Jesus, who need redemption, who need to hear of God's love and his goodness are literally everywhere in our life. And you might be sitting here thinking, when is God going to send me my Boaz? Not realizing that he's already put a Ruth in your life that you need to be a Boaz too. I'm not talking about marriage, but ministry. Yes, God provides. God works miracles and he answers prayers. God provides and providence is a very real thing. And as the more you seek him and the more you lean into him, the more you're going to see his face shine on you, the more you will see here and now that God's redemption is a real thing. And you're also going to see and it's going to give you a glimpse of what's yet to come. And yet God challenges us. Take that hope of redemption and share it. Share it with those people who God just so happened to put in your life. 
Both are incredibly real truths. Truths that we should not just recognize, but truths we actually really should be grateful for. We should be grateful because we know the type of God we serve. I want to close on this story. You guys remember a couple months ago, I, I talked about uh, how our house was invaded by scorpions. Anyone remember that? <laughs> yeah, our house was invaded by scorpions. In the course of a couple of weeks, we had about four scorpions in our house. At the time, we had a roommate. The roommate was stung by one. Um, well, the story of our haunted house continues. Uh, about a couple months ago, my wife uh, went to go get the mail. It was in the middle of the day. She went to go get the mail. Uh, she opened up the door, hadn't even stepped outside. She was still inside. And just as she opens up the front door, she starts to feel a stinging feeling on her foot. And she looked down, and it wasn't a scorpion. It was a snake. There was a snake sitting right at the front door, and the moment she opens it up, jumped out and bit her. And by the coloring and the diamond-shaped head... Uh, and, and, the, and the, the prongs, there's like a two, very clear prong bite like that, that uh, venomous snake skiff, right? We, we think it was a rattlesnake. Now, it was a dry bite. It must have been a dry bite. She went to the hospital. She was fine. Kids are frantic. I remember my oldest was scared to go to the bathroom because she's worried a snake's going to slime out of it and get her. <laughs> and I'm like, that was crazy. Snakes aren't just ever just sitting at your front door. A week later... <laughs> same day, it's like a Tuesday, and she opens the door up, and there's this big old snake sitting right at the front door. She calls me, and I run home, and, you know, I think, fortunately, it was actually a big black snake, and they thought that meant it was a dragon. Um, that I didn't mean it was a king snake. It's a good thing. It's probably literally hunting that rattlesnake that was there before. But there's a snake. Still, anxiety's high. And then my wife thought, well, at least the whole scorpion thing is over. A couple days later... She were, she's, I was fixing something in the kitchen. I think like we had a baby gate and it fell off. And I'm on my hands and knees and I'm messing with it. And then I finish and then I move my hands like this. And inches away is a scorpion with its tail ready to sting. Right, and I catch it. And then my wife like posted this on social media. And then someone from the news actually reached out. And they did a story on her and about our house. And there's like a picture. This is like, this is from it. You can see my wife and our kids are up there playing. There's this whole thing. And I know several of you guys have said you saw her on the news that she's famous now. But our haunted house, right, it's, it's a real thing where we got huge spiders all over the place. There's giant centipedes everywhere. Our house is currently being invaded by wasps. I have no idea whether, if there's a nest or not. But literally every day I walk outside, there's like eight wasps on my door. We've been stung three times in the last like two weeks or something. Um, and it was also at the same time, we're in, as many of you guys know, we're in a season of waiting and we're waiting for a business opportunity. We're waiting and we're just praying that God would, would bring about a change in our life, uh, something that we've been waiting for for a couple years now. And sometimes we get frustrated and disappointed and discouraged that things are not where we want them to be. And, and our living situation seems to be sitting dead center of that. And maybe because when we started this journey is when we moved out of a house that we owned and we kind of not been in an ideal living situation since then. And so every snake, every scorpion, every wasting is this little reminder we are waiting and we aren't where we want to be. We're waiting for God's next move. And this is so small compared to what most things that people are dealing with today. Nevertheless, it's where we are at. And we can get so discouraged and so frustrated and it's, I'm continually reminded though. And I'm challenged to be thankful. Because I can look back in my life and see these remarkable ways that God has 
provided and he's brought about unseeming circumstances to, to, to provide for me, to care for us and to get us from one step to the next. And I'm reminded, I'm challenged to be grateful because I have seen him do it before and I know he will do it again. And it might not be something I'll ever understand in this life. It might be something I'll understand in eternity. I have no idea. But we as God's people, we have every reason to be thankful. Whether you're in a season of loss, of longing, of waiting, of hope, or disappointment. Whether you're waiting for your Boaz or you're needing to be a Boaz. God's plans for your life might be different than ours. It might be different than your plan. But we have every reason to be thankful because his are better. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, God, thank you so much for today, Lord. And I just ask for a blessing on each one of us, God, that these words would just sink on our hearts and would shift us and mold us and challenge us, God. And I ask that you do what only you can do, God, that you make this matter to us and change us and move us. God, I thank you for your love. God, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for those subtle circumstances that you bring about in our lives that show us your providence, that show us your hand and your care in our lives. Father, thank you. Praising is in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.